again, reading and preaching for you out of Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. Hear now the word of God. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this word. We thank you that as we can go back and anticipate, um, almost pretend to anticipate as if in this day when these words were first proclaimed to your people, the coming of your son, our savior. Help us to do so with thanksgiving that we know who this is. We know who this light is and help us celebrate Jesus Christ as our Savior in the light to this world. But also, Father, as we put ourselves in this position, as we celebrate the incarnation of the Son, may we also be, continue to anticipate the return of the Son. And may we respond in faithfulness, not only in celebration, but with repentance and faith, and with longing and hope and with joy. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> it is very common that this time of the year, not only um, in many churches and also in the history of our church, we have gone through a series of Advent and Christmas sermons. And we will do so again for the next six Sundays. We will be having Advent, which is the anticipation of the coming of the King, and then we will have a, a Christmas ser a sermon on Christmas Eve and, uh, and afterward as well, the following Sunday, and then we will celebrate an epiphany as we, we also celebrate with the whole world the revelation of Jesus Christ, just as it was there when he was born and people came to worship him we will remind ourselves of this great blessing of having the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Also, during this time of the year, it's very common for everyone, everywhere you go, it is a very common thing that it is a time of contrast. And because of the season of it being a darker time, we know that lights are just a wonderful and beautiful part of this time of the year. So much that we even see that Halloween is trying to steal now from Christmas to have lights. It seems like they're doing more and more, which is ironic, which has been more so of a celebration of dark things. And here lately, I was like, wow, I've been seeing a lot of Halloween lights that are trying to compete with Christmas lights. And it's just an infectious thing that we want to have light during this time. And so we get to see this contrast more because in the Northern Hemisphere, we have a longer season of darkness. I was actually amazed to think, I was researching a little bit, that 90% of human beings on this earth are in the Northern Hemisphere. I didn't realize that. I did not realize that only 10%, it's actually 88% of everyone lives in the Northern Hemisphere. So that means that 88% of all people are experiencing winter right now, and only about 12% are experiencing summertime. And so where the light is actually more. And if we think about this being a time, and if we look at the math, and there's debates about whether or not this was exactly the same time that Jesus would have been born, but there's some that confirm it, and there's some that still just try to dispute it, and I'm not going to try to take on that fight here at all. But if that is the case, that it happened in December, that would have meant that even then, probably the bulk of all, even more than 88% of the people would have been in a time of a darker time of the year where we would have shorter days and longer nights. This passage is a passage of contrast that is using that very clearly. And it's an image that we have from the very beginning in Genesis and even now. And we see that there is this darkness and we know that this darkness is a heavy darkness And that when Jesus comes on the scene and as they are looking forward to their Messiah and looking forward to the promises of a Savior, that it's going to be this light that comes into our darkness. And so I know that if you are like me, we look for every opportunity to to throw more lights out there for fun. And it's It just does something for us. It's encouraging and it it affects our emotion. And I pray that through this particular sermon today, that as you have heard probably many years, these kind of comparisons, that when you plug in those lights, that you will remember Jesus coming in and being light in our darkness and doing away with the darkness with his light. So it is a time of contrast, and this passage is is very heavy with with contrast, and it's really meant to be um, combined with Isaiah 8. And the the beginning of chapter 9 is using the word but. And so when you ever have a but, it's a conjunction, and so you know it's got to be connecting something that's preceding it. And so it's important for all of you to go back and look at Isaiah 8, and, and it's tempting to jump in and and preach Isaiah 8, and I'm not going to try to do that today, but we see that we have, just as we have this contrast between darkness and light, we have this contrast between because and but. And chapter 8 is telling you because, it's telling you the reason why that the people of Israel are in the circumstances and that they are in. And this reason why, this because of Israel is really ultimately the condition of mankind. 
It's a representation, often as Israel is, and we, even in our prayer time this morning, as we went through the passage in Samuel, we, it's, it's impossible, I think, for any faithful and mature Christian to read through that chapter and not see how Israel is a representation of us today in our own personal lives and maybe even our own corporate lives, how we reject the ways of God for our own ways and find ourselves in failure. The same circumstances here, the because is highlighted. We even see in Isaiah chapter eight, verses six through seven, it says, because this people has refused the waters of Shaloah that flow gently and rejoice over resin in the son of Ramalia, Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks. It points out two things, that the reason why the people of Israel are in this situation where they are in darkness and in gloom is because they rejected the waters of Siloah and they have rejoiced over Rezin and the son of Ramalia. And what's going on here is just very simply that they rejected the provision of the Lord. Here, the waters of Siloah are very basic. They're not glamorous waters, but they are provisional waters, and they have rejected the Lord's water. They have ultimately rejected the Lord. And they've taken on this pride, whereas they look at the, re- the judgment upon Rezin and the son of Ramalia, they rejoice over it in a way of haltiness. There is not a humility amongst the people of God. And so there is pride and there is independent pride, thinking that they can be sustained. They want something more glorious than what God has to provide. Simply it's their pride and their unwillingness to take the humble provision of the Lord. And so they're in this condition now that we see at the end of chapter 8, verses 21 through 22. It says, they pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into the thick darkness. I was actually kind of pleased to see the forecast this morning was going to be cloudy and a little gloomy. And I was kind of hoping, it's like the Lord, he's shining forth his light before I can even get to that point. But all of you have just experienced it. It was gloomy. You know, the, the clouds, when they're thick with rain, it blocks out the light. And so it was dark and it was gloomy. And it's been like that in the past few days. And it may have been even a more of a contrast for us because we've been without rain so much in the last couple of months that it seemed maybe a little heavier in that darkness. Here we see these words that Isaiah are using are painful words in this description that the result of the rejection of the people of God for the provision of God, the result of their haughtiness where their faces are lifted forward and high, even in the midst of their own gloom, we see words like distressed and hunger. We see rage and contempt. We see distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. I, don't, I didn't go and study what the word in Hebrew is for gloom, but it, it, it just sounds like gloom, like doom. It just seems heavy. And that's the result 
of their pride. And they were thrust in this place of darkness. A lot of times we think in being in darkness in this very victim kind of scenario or in this kind of just almost innocent, like maybe more so ignorance. But it's important to see that it's not ignorance that they are put into without knowledge at all or without the ability to have knowledge. It's it's really pride. It's really the rejection of God. But the book of Isaiah is interesting. It's It's a very interesting book of contrast. It's a very heavy book of contrast where it gets even more graphic even than the passages that we're covering for this particular season. But inside of all of that gloom and inside of that darkness, there's always these places of the gospel and the hope being presented. So if you ever go and do a study of Isaiah, you might get into it. And you might go, oh, this is just too much. But, but look inside of that. Look inside of almost every word and every passage and every chapter There are these lights of the gospel being there. And here, after we see these heavy words, and even in chapter 8, there's all kinds of lacing of of the gospel and the promise of hope inside of it. But then we have here in chapter 9, this great division between the two with the word but. But there will be no more. In the former time, there was these things such as gloom and anguish and contempt. But there'll be no more these things. God is doing something that he's going to break through the gloom. He's going to break through the anguish and the contempt. And then we see this interesting description of the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. If you go and you look at your map, you'll see there in the, the land of God's people that the northern part was called Zebulun and Naphtali. And if you look at the history of the Assyrian army, they came in from that direction, that this particular land was a place that was far away from Jerusalem, it was far away from the south, and it was a borderland area where it was very vulnerable for attack. That is where the enemies of God would come in. And even though the word is not being described here in this particular verse, what you could add to gloom, anguish, and contempt is vulnerability and weakness. So as we look at this, we can often think in our own life, the result of our own sin or the sin of other people in our life, how it brings great gloom, anguish, contempt, and darkness. We can think about different times in our life where we are vulnerable. We may be vulnerable from attack, but also the oppression of our own sin and the appetites of our own hearts. But here we have this hopeful proclamation of this as being a former thing, that when Christ comes, when the Messiah comes, which he has not yet come, but it's it's spoken so hopefully here that it seems immediate that Christ has come. And we know that as we look at things more clearly, they do not know as full as we do who this Messiah is. We have again here, But, again, in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The reason why Isaiah 9 is an Advent passage is because we know that in Matthew chapter 4, 
This was the fulfillment passage. Matthew 4 fulfilled the passage of this promise when Jesus began his ministry. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17, it says, Now when he, Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness, have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. This passage is proclaimed as being fulfilled when Jesus begins his ministry right after the temptation that he had with Satan. And having defeated Satan, he is now beginning his ministry in the very next words after this fulfillment passage. It says that from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He comes into this darkness, and we can see clearly by this particular passage in Isaiah that this darkness is sin. And Jesus comes in with proclaiming the gospel, really taking the baton that his forerunner, John, who had become lesser in his arresting and in his subsequent, also his martyrdom, Jesus' glory comes in preaching the same words, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We see that this vulnerability of Zebulun and Naphtali turns into a glorious way to the sea. That what was considered to be a weak area amongst the land of Israel is now going to be a glorious place. It's where the light is going to begin in that particular area. And we see here this hint that this Galilee of the nations, this Galilee of the Gentiles, it's actually where our Savior is going to begin his offensive. It's been a place of defense in a weak place where the Assyrians came in and they were able to oppress the people of God. Now Jesus, the Messiah, as he comes in, is going to set up his charge. It is the gates of hell even where he is going to come in and he is going to attack and he's not only going to save his people, he is going to save the world. Galilee, the place where the Gentiles were. It was a place, since it was a border region, it was a place where there were other people other than the Jews there amongst them. And it is going to be the strategy of how this king is going to attack to take over the world. So Isaiah gives us these following four verses for us to look at what Jesus, this Messiah, what they are going to be anticipating there is they are anticipating the Savior. Isaiah is going to tell that there are four particular areas that this Messiah is going to attack. And we see them in the next four verses, two through five. So if you want to look at what particular points of this sermon is, this would be it. In verse two, we see that Jesus is coming to defeat darkness. And that's the very clear and very prominent attack that his number one attack is sin and that he is the light. 
He is the goodness that is coming into this darkness. In verse 3, we see that the people are hungry, that they are in contempt. They hold contempt and they are in contempt because of their holding contempt. There is this emptiness within them. And the only thing that they have in place of that emptiness is bitterness. But when Jesus comes to the scene, he is going to fulfill that for them. He will give them fullness. And instead of bitterness, he will replace it with joy. In verse 4, we see that this continual understanding that the result of sin is distress, burden, oppression, Just like in our Samuel passage from our prayer time this morning, that when we reject the Lord and that we have this audacity to think that we can choose another way, another way to be ruled, another way to live, we end up being slaves. And it is full of distress and burdens that are beyond us. It's full of oppression. Again, all of these things are real to the people of Israel and and even maybe real to us, but they are all images of what it's like to be subjected to sin. Sin has nothing to promise other than distress and burden. And many of us today are even often still dealing with the oppression of sin in our lives. But when the Messiah comes, this promised light, he brings forth liberty. He brings forth rest. And then lastly, in verse 5, coming back to this term gloom, this gloom of anguish, it almost seems like verse 5 is almost too overwhelming. It's too many words of description of gloom, all of this anguish. And what we're seeing here is that it is too overwhelming, that all of these results of sin are so overwhelming. It's like an army coming into our lives, and ultimately we see that the result is death that it is death. It is so overwhelming. We cannot defend ourselves from the torment of this war that is coming upon us because of the result of sin. But even here in this particular verse, in verse five, we see that these things that were used as weapons against God's people, these images of death will be lit afire. And finally, again, there's another image of light in the darkness. That the very things that are going to be considered to be oppressive, gloom of anguish, that that will become glorious. How is it that these images of death will become glorious? Well, surely you can see that there is a place here even where There's a sign of the resurrection ahead. So let's go through quickly these particular terms again quickly. So going back to verse 2, we're looking at darkness and sin. And and this is something that we'll see off and on all the way until the end of our sermon series. And really, it never ends. We'll always be talking about darkness and light. We'll always be talking about sin and always be talking about the righteousness of Christ and always be talking about his goodness and his promises and his salvation for us. But I want us to be continuing to see that and just to highlight the darkness, if you may. We see that this is almost a repeat for us to go back into the very beginning. Genesis 1, 1, 4. In the beginning, God created 
the heavens and the earth. Your earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. God separated the light from the darkness. We know that God's people was supposed to be a separation, that they were supposed to be the light. But we see very clearly that because of sin, we're nothing but failures at that, that we are just ways of replicating the darkness because of our rebellion. And so God has to bring in the light. And when we look at this passage here, we see that it is people who are walking in darkness. Their walk is in darkness and they are dwelling in darkness. But they see a great light. They're not the light. They don't become the light. They don't set up the light, but a light on them has been shown. God penetrates the darkness with this Messiah and brings forth light upon them. It is still him that's doing the work, just as he was in, at creation, bringing light into the darkness. So how are we still sometimes walking and dwelling in darkness? You know, it's like for us, if we look at what the passages tell us in the scriptures, that we are people of the light. If you look at our confession of sin, it may have seemed a bit, a, a bit of a long confession of sin and assurance of grace, but I was trying to find something that would fall along with this whole theme of light. We are people of the light, so we should walk in the light. We're having to be admonished to continue to walk in the light, even though that we are now identified as people of the light. It's kind of like when you have a bright and sunny room, and we may want to go dwell in the basement and shut all the doors and walk around in the dark. It would be that kind of darkness. Where, in fact, the more bright the light is outside when you come into a basement room, it's even darker. It should be very hard to, to, to see anything. But if you're in the darkness for a while, you become accustomed to being able to maneuver around in the darkness. It should be that difficult for us. And so here are people walking and dwelling in darkness, and we are being admonished here also that we should not want to be those who are walking and dwelling in darkness. Who likes to walk in darkness? And so the question is, why do we continue to do so? We see that when Jesus comes into the darkness for us, just as we see in the Matthew passage, we will see in the John 1 passage when we get to Epiphany that Jesus comes in and he says, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. A lot of people don't like the word repent, but repent's like a flicker of light. All of a sudden you can see the things that are going on in the darkness. That's why Paul in the book of Ephesians says that we should expose the things that are in darkness. That light exposes the things. That we can now see what's going on. We can see the dangers of what our destruction is doing to us. So repent is the beginning of light, even as we see that being the fulfillment of Christ in Matthew, that he begins his proclamations with the word repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 3, reflecting again on hunger and contempt, this emptiness and bitterness. The world is so full of emptiness and bitterness 
Even we at times still wrestle with emptiness and bitterness. I wonder sometimes if my friend lifeguard Larry is listening to my sermons and so I, I hope that I'm not saying anything that would be of any disrespect to him but this week he asked me um, what I thought about Islam and, and he was uh, talking about the, the dome, the rock, dome of the rock um, and people fighting for that territory. He's been talking to me a lot about what's going on over in Israel and the, the fight between Hamas and Israel and and he was saying, isn't that where, um, where uh, Muhammad went into heaven? And I said, well, I know Muhammad is dead. I know he has a grave. Now, I know that he believes that he had an epiphany and went up into heaven. And so we talked about that, and we, we were just challenging each other to, to get the facts right concerning Islam. But then he said, why is it? He says, as a Christian, why is it that you think that there are so many religions that are not your religion? Why are there so many other people? If your religion is right, why are there so many? And he at the time thought that Islam had surpassed Christianity. I think the numbers still are higher that there are more Christians than there are Muslims. But I said, well, because one, we're made in God's image and we have to try to worship something. We're worshipful people by our design. And then secondly, we have a sense of need of order because we are made in God's image. And when we don't have the right answers, we'll just make up answers. <laughs> and we're going to, we'll make up different kinds of religions and we'll be easily deceived into other kinds of religion. We are people who feel emptiness because we, when we are apart from the way that we've been designed, there's going to be a hunger. We're not just rocks. We are made to be able to receive and to worship, to be interwoven with our creator. We are alive and we are relational. And when we are separated from our fellowship with God, it's going to be empty. And we're going to be left with bitterness. That's why so many religions today are so full of hunger. They're looking for ways of conquering to fulfill that emptiness. And if you look at so many of the religions outside of Christianity, it's almost that it's always about conquering. And it's always in this position of being the victim more so than the perpetrator. It's very much like what we see Israel when they are separated from God. They're hungry, but they have contempt toward God. They're the victim of their own circumstances when they stand before God. It's God's fault that they're in their circumstances and not their own. That's why CRT, this whole critical race theory or critical race mood is always based upon being a victim to someone else and it becomes a religion. Everything is revolving around them. Their heads are left up high and they hold everyone and if they even believe in God, they'll hold God into contempt. And it becomes their way of worship. So there's this hunger and contempt, this emptiness and bitterness. And when Jesus comes, he promises that he will annihilate that. That is such a hopeful thing to know that when we encounter this light, that we surrender the deception of victimhood. 
And the amazing thing is, is that that light of repentance comes in and penetrates and it says, no, you are a perpetrator. <laughs> and that sounds to be harsh and hard, but it's the beginning of understanding truth. It's beginning to see the light. And as God multiplies that, we can actually be filled with him. There'll be an increase. There'll be a harvest. We'll be able to enjoy the spoil of what Christ accomplishes by actually becoming the true victim. And that we get to surrender with repentance and forgiveness, and therefore the spoil is joy. We see there in verse 3, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at harvest. I told Jennifer, I said, I don't know how to get light into that particular verse. And she said, well, you got to make hay while the sun's shining, right? <laughs> I'm like, well, why is it so simple? <laughs> There's light at the harvest. We don't harvest in the dark. We harvest in the light. But there is a place where we get to harvest joy when the light of the Lord comes. And Jesus says to us in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He fills our emptiness. He takes away our bitterness and he lives us with nothing but joy. John 15, 11, These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. When we surrender to the lie of that we are the one that has a reason to have contempt against God, we are able to receive his joy, and we are full of his joy. The bitterness goes away. And then in verse 4, these terms of distress, burden, oppression, we see that the yoke of our burden, the staff that is on our shoulder, these these things of being bound, where we see that we're being bound by sin. We're seeing that there is this, this harshness, this correctness, we, that even though we may have an understanding of what's going on, we're, we're being tied to it, we're bound to it, and there's nothing, it's nothing but oppression to us when we have this rod upon us. This is exactly what it looks like when we are tied down by sin and our selfish appetites. This is the life of having to carry this, this yoke, this burden, and that we might, have to, we might have a sense of discipline, but our discipline is causing us to be disciplined to a practice that leads nothing but to death. But then we have this promise that it will be broken, that the yoke will be broken, this rod will be broken, this staff will be broken, this oppression of sin will be broken as on the day of Midian. Kids, do you remember what happened in Midian? Who is the unexpected hero, or adults, maybe you know, what? who is the unexpected hero when they took off, when God's people was able to get out from under the oppression of Midian? Anybody know the story? Sounds like Midian. It was Gideon. Gideon was a judge and a leader that 
was small and his group was small. In fact, God purposely picked Gideon and his people. He kept making them smaller and smaller to where there was only 300 left because God wanted to, to highlight that it was going to be his strength. And then what did God have Gideon do to confuse the Midianites? What's that? Blow the trumpets in one hand and what else in the other hand? And, and what was the pots having them? Light. It was the light in the darkness of that time that brought forth the defeat of their oppressors. Here again, we have Isaiah pointing to us that when this light comes in, it will destroy the yoke of our burden, the staff that's on our shoulder, the rod of our oppression, and it's going to seem to be something from someone small. It's going to come all the way down that it's ultimately going to be God. It will not be us that will free us from that. And then it will flip over and that we will see, as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He will put a yoke upon us, but the yoke will be something that is light. It will be a restful yoke. That when we become those who are disciplined to him, his disciples, and we are learning from him, when his staff is there before us, it is a staff of comfort that directs us into a place of light. It directs us to living waters. It directs us to a pasture that will fill us. There is a rest in the discipleship of the Lord. When we think about school, I know when the kids think about school, they don't think about it as being a restful thing. But being a disciple of Jesus Christ, though our life may have oppression from the enemy, it may have trouble and adversity, that our discipline in the Lord is that he is constantly reminding us that his burden is light, that he has taken on this burden for us at the cross. We see this even in Isaiah chapter 8. The very daunting passage there. In the middle of chapter 8 in verse 11 it says. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me. And warned me not to walk in the way of this people. God's strong hand. God's warning to him is that not to walk in this darkness saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. Look at that. It says that when you make the Lord your fear and you make the Lord your dread, when you become a disciple to listening to his words, he will become a sanctuary. But he will still be an offense and a rock of stumbling to those who want to try to do it their own way, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. But because of our hardness, it says they will fall and they will be broken and they will be snared and taken 
And again, Isaiah says, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples, seal this in, let this particular yoke, let this particular rod of instruction and teaching be among my disciples. And here we see that Isaiah is the one who is celebrating Advent and says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me. Does that sound familiar? Hopefully you recall that that was in Hebrews when we see that Jesus sings that before the Lord. It says that for those who inquire of mediums and necromancers who chirp and murder, mutter, not murder, I just think that was funny. I, I, I wonder what that would have been sounding like. Chirp and murder. Should not, have, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they not inquire? Should they inquire the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to his word, it is because they have no dawn. Ultimately, it's because they have no light. Do we not do the same thing? Do we not, even now, we have these things that chirp and mutter. (laughs) We spend more of our time looking for things, looking for reviews, looking for references, looking for even hope in these things of the world. But we see there in chapter 8 that they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness. If we are spending too much time looking at the light that comes from those screens, we are missing out on the dawn of light of our Savior. And then lastly, in verse 5, it says, For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood. Tumult is a interesting word. I did research that some, and it's, it's just chaotic. It's just dark chaos. It's the chaos of war. It's the, the grueling elements of just being defeated and overrun by the enemy. It's a painful word, and Isaiah is just throwing it at it. When we think of boot, we think of being pressed down. We're thinking of this bloody and and painful boot, that we're low. Why would a boot be an image of pain? Is because we're on the ground. We're laying low. The boot is pressing us in. The boot of sin is tramping down, and it's nothing but death left over. It seems hopeless. But the amazing thing here is that with the promise of the advent of the coming of the Lord, that this very thing, which is seemingly be the worst thing so far of all the things, you know, it's one thing to have a yoke, it's one thing to have oppression, it's another thing to be in the dark, but to to be dead, to be completely just buried and pressed into the mud, This particular thing, when the advent of the Lord comes, is the very thing that is going to be lit up and be fuel to the fire that brings and rages greater light. Warren Gage, who is a professor 
at Knox Theological Seminary in Florida, he compares this garment rolled in blood as being the garment, the garments that Jesus wears. If you think about it, when we are reading the passages of the birth of Jesus Christ, what do the shepherds find Jesus covered in? Swaddling clothes, cloths that are there. And, and it may seem like, well, all babies would have been wrapped up like that. Like, no, there was, it was going to be a distinctive thing. And the reason why it was a distinctive thing is because those particular garments that were wrapped around Jesus were the same kind of garments that were wrapping around a sacrificial lamb. It was highlighting that he would become the sacrificial lamb, that these particular cloths were a representation of the blood that he would spill. Then we also are reminded, though, of the resurrection, that the cloths that wrapped around that sacrifice, when Jesus rose from the grave, were left there in the grave as Jesus had been resurrected. But it doesn't end there. The, this garment of blood is still something that we have an advent expectation of seeing one day. Warren Gage makes a parallel between Joseph's coat of many colors that when his brothers stole it, they, what did they do to it? They dipped it in blood. And where this shepherd had been overtaken by the beast, and they lied and they presented this coat as an evidence of defeat for Joseph. Warren Gage says, similarly, Jesus is the shepherd's son, beloved by his father, yet rejected by his brothers. The sign of Jesus's rejection is the coat he wears dipped in blood in Revelation 19 in his victorious return. Even though his father has exalted him to the right hand of the throne, it is now encircled by a rainbow of many colors. A wild beast tried to devour Jesus, but he was lifted up before his own family, represented by a woman clothed with the sun and the moon and the 12 stars, Revelation chapter 12. After Jesus was exalted, he appears wearing a robe with a golden sash. Every knee now bows before him. The very highlighting here that the garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire, that death itself will be the thing that will bring about glorious victory, that Jesus will take on this garment rolled in blood, both in his incarnation, in his resurrection, and also in his return, that this fire of glory is the very light of Jesus Christ. He will be clothed in a rainbow of many colors. It'll be a piercing light that we will no longer need the sun S-U-N because we are in the presence 
of the sun, S-O-N. This fire is the glorious Jesus Christ. May it be that we will anticipate with joy his return. Just as with Isaiah, it is promising and hopeful, but it is also a warning that we would rest in this light, that we would delight in being people of light. May you take these words in anticipation as we celebrate Christmas this year. May you have encouragement and joy that this is the kind of Savior we are celebrating. And may we do so with repentance and hope. Let us pray.